40 years ago this week, uh, astronaut Bruce McCandless II became the first astronaut in history to do a spacewalk completely untethered to any spacecraft. He used a nitrogen-propelled backpack device called a manned maneuvering unit, an MMU, and we've got a picture of it to show it to you. And he used that to propel himself around. Now, I don't know about you, but just looking at that photo gives me a a mild level of anxiety. (laughs) Other astronauts had done spacewalks before, but they were always connected to something. This was incredibly risky. To step into space connected to absolutely nothing took complete trust. McCandless was completely untethered to all the ordinary means for security. He had to completely trust that machine to work. When I look at that photo, I think this is a vivid picture of what a life of faith looks like. Untethered to all of the ordinary things that normal people find security and trust in, God calls us to step out in faith trusting him and him alone. And that's a life that he has called Abraham into. As we look at Genesis chapter 17 this morning, you find that this is a picture of Abraham's calling. God calls him to step out from all of the ordinary means of security. In Genesis chapter 12, he calls him to leave his family behind, leave his home behind, leave his land behind, and just step out in faith, trusting God to direct him. And if God didn't come through for him, then he would be toast. Okay, that's what it says in Hebrew. McCandless, if that machine didn't work, he would be toast. I mean, that, that was full and complete trust. And that's the life of faith that Abraham has been called to live, is just to totally trust God to come through for him and not to rely or find his security or his foundation in anything else. And this is, a, this is a lesson that he's been learning from Genesis chapter 12 all the way to Genesis chapter 17, and not perfectly. Abraham has been making a lot of mistakes along the way. His faith is shaky at times. He acts uh, in compromise at times. His, his life is up and down. He's learning, though, what it means to, to trust the promises of God and live a life of complete faith. All along the way... God keeps reassuring Abraham of his faithfulness and of his promises. Now, now, Abraham has a hard time believing that God is entirely capable of keeping his promises at times. And so Abraham will take things into his own hands at times. He'll manipulate situations. He does all kinds of things acting out of faith in chapters 12 through 16. But all the way, God is reminding him, you can trust me. You can step out untethered to anything else, trusting me alone. And when we come to Genesis chapter 17, we find one of the greatest assurances probably in this whole section of God's promises. The beginning of chapter 17 reminds us that Abraham does not yet have children. God had promised to give him children, to give him descendants innumerable, far far greater than the stars of the sky. He's made this great promise to him, but Abraham is getting older and still no children. The end of chapter 16 tells us he was 86 years old. He'd been in the land of Canaan for 10 years, waiting for God to give him children, no children, at least not from Sarah. You turn the page to chapter 17, verse 1, it says he's now 99 years old. So now he's been in the land for 23 years. And the author puts that detail in there to let you know it's been a long time. God has still not delivered. So Abraham is still at chapter 17 at this point of waiting. And so what God is going to do, he's going to come to him and he's going to reveal some things about him that that are designed to 
strengthen Abraham's trust, strengthen his faith, help him trust God completely, being untethered to anything but him. And so I want us to dive into the text, and I hope that you find some encouragement this morning as we get a glimpse into God's interaction with Abraham here. I hope that you will also be strengthened in your faith as you have been called to trust God completely. And we're going to see uh, uh, some things that can strengthen that trust this morning. The first thing that we see here is that if we're going to trust God completely, we need to know who God is for us. Amen? If if you're going to trust God, you need to know who God is. You, You need to know something about the nature and the character of this God who you are being called to trust. And so the first thing that happens in this story is that God is going to reveal himself to Abraham and share some about his character and his nature to Abraham. So let's, let's dive in. Chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. It says, Abram, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him saying, I am God Almighty. Literally, El Shaddai. That's a new name for God in the story. El Shaddai, God Almighty. Live in my presence. In Hebrew, it's literally walk before me and be blameless. And I will set up my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell face down, and God spoke with him. As for me, here is my covenant with you. You will become the father of many nations. Your name will no longer be Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I will make you the father of many nations." And I will make you extremely fruitful, and I will make nations and kings come from you. And I will confirm my covenant that is between me and you and your future offspring throughout their generations. It's a permanent covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. And to you and your future offspring, I will give the land where you're residing, all the land of Canaan as a permanent possession, and I will be their God. Okay, let's just stop right there. Here it is, Abram's 99 years old, 23 years in the land, 23 years after God made him a promise to give him children, and there's no children. And God comes to him and reminds him of the promises he, he's made, but he couches that promise in eight verses describing his own character. God comes to Abraham and he just says, listen, Abraham, I want to remind you of who I am. I want to tell you some things about my character so that you can know that you can completely trust me. And I would just tell you this, if you're going to live a life like astronaut Bruce McCandless, out there untethered to any of the normal means of security, just completely relying, completely trusting God, you need to have a big view of God. You need to have a view of a big God. You need to think more highly of him than you do. And God begins with Abraham by just showing him something of his character, revealing who he is for Abram. And that would give Abram the confidence and it will give us the confidence to trust him. So let's just look at a few of God's characteristics in these verses. First of all, he reveals himself as the God of power. He says, I am God Almighty. He uses a new name for himself. I've told you that there are many names for God in the Bible. And the reason for that is because God is so big and so great that he exhausts the dictionary's ability to adequately describe him. There's there's no name that you can fully describe God's character with. And so we have all kinds of names for God. And this is a new one. It's the name El Shaddai. It means God Almighty, the God who has all the power. Uh, Sometimes it's translated God of the mountains. If you, you see sometimes El Shaddai will be tra- tra- translated, I am the God of the mountains. Now, what's the connection between being God of the mountains and being God Almighty? Well, the idea is that if God is big enough to create the mountains, 
then he's got all the power. If God is big enough to speak and Pike's Peak comes into existence, he's powerful. If he can speak and Mount Everest comes into existence, he's all powerful. If he's the God of the mountains, then he's the God who's got all the strength. It means he's the ruler of the entire cosmos. Now think about how encouraging that would have been to Abraham. If you're 99 years old now, and God has promised you children, and you don't have the child of the promise, you're you're frankly looking at an impossible situation. So of course God would begin by saying, you can trust me because I am the God of all power. I am the God of the mountains. I am God with all the might in the world. If you're facing an impossible situation, like having a child at 99 years old, understand who God is for you. He rules the entire cosmos, which means there's nothing too big. There's nothing impossible for him to do. Amen? Have a big view of God. Not only is he the God of power, he's also the God of promises. He says in verse two, and I will set up my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you greatly. This word covenant is significant theologically in the book of Genesis. It's a word that he uses again and again. You remember back in chapter 15, he uses this word with Abraham. He makes a covenant. A covenant is a a solemn agreement between two parties. In chapter 15, God takes that self-maledictory oath, right? On pain of death, God says, I will keep my promise to you. I would sooner die than lie. And it's impossible for God to die. It's also impossible for him to lie. That's that word, covenant. Here he uses it again in verse two, just to remind Abram, I'm a God who's promised you something. I'm a God who's made promises. The book of Hebrews tells us that God's promises are so certain that not only does he make a promise, but he swears an oath to keep his promise. Uh, That means that he promises to keep his promise. That's pretty good. All God needs to do is just promise it. But just to give you certainty, God says, I promise to keep my promise. You know, it's interesting. If you go to a courtroom and you have to testify, you'll put your hand on a Bible, you'll stick your hand in the air, and you'll say, you know, I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So help me, God. You know what God does? He says, I'm going to do what I said. I'm going to keep my promises. So help me, me. So help me, me. There's no higher name that God can invoke than his own to validate, verify, certify his promises. He is a God of covenant. He's the God who makes promises. Abraham could trust God completely, untethered to any of the normal means for security because God is the God of power. He's almighty. He's the God who creates mountains. He's also the God who makes promises. Third, he's the God of new beginnings. The God of new beginnings. Did you notice right here tucked into verse uh, four and five, He says, you're going to be the father of many nations. And then he gives Abram a new name. Now, the word Abram, the name Abram means exalted father. Okay, that's what it means. It's probably a description of God. Abram was named, reminding him to exalt the father who had called him out of Ur. But he says, I'm going to give you a new name. You're going to be called Abraham. Now, this is probably the name you know Abram by. Abraham means the father of a multitude. In his very name, his identity would now be wrapped up with the promises of God. Every time now, think 99, still no child of promise. Every time now someone sees him, they're going to say, hey, (laughs) father of a multitude. Hey, calling father of a multitude. Hey, father of a multitude, how are you this morning? Hey, father of a multitude, how was your day today? Think about how many times 
Your name is called in any given day. Can you imagine how many times Abram would hear Abraham? I gotta get the right word now. I've been using Abram for four chapters. Abraham, how many times his name would be used in a day? And every time he heard his name, it would be a reminder of the promise. You're gonna be the father of a multitude. Now, here's the thing that's significant about this. By the way, not only does Abraham get a new name, so does Sarah. If you look down at verse 15, it says, you'll no longer call your wife Sarai. Sarah will be her name. Sarah means princess. The significance of them getting new names. Anytime you have someone who receives a new name in the Bible, which happens all over the place. Think about Simon becomes Peter. Saul becomes Paul. Here you have Abram becoming Abraham, Sarai becoming Sarai. Anytime you have a new name, it's always a mark that God is giving you a new beginning. It's significant for us as believers in Christ because when you come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, you are given a new name. The book of Revelation says this. If you read the letters to the seven churches, it's interesting how many times this concept of a new name comes up. But one of the descriptions in Revelation 2 says that God will give you a new name that no one knows but you and God. I don't know what all that means. It just sounds awesome. The the idea that when I become a follower of Jesus, there's a sense in which I have a a fresh start. I have a new name. I get a new beginning. There's a break from my past. Folks, that is exactly what Abram needs in this moment. Because what's happened in the previous chapter? Genesis 16, adultery, right? He's He's invited this other woman into his bed. They have made a baby, Ishmael. Epic fail in Genesis chapter 16. And we all have our Genesis 16 moments. It may not look exactly like it looked like for for Abraham, but we all have things in our past that we wish never had happened. We have things that we regret. We have things where we just say, I wish I had a break from my past. I wish I could hit the start over button. I wish I had a brand new beginning. Well, that's exactly what God is giving to Abraham in this moment. He's saying, I'm giving you a new name. That means you get a fresh start. You get a clean slate. You get the opportunity to start over again. Who is God for Abraham? He is the God of new beginnings. Who is he for you? He's the God who can give you a fresh start. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, the good news of the gospel is that 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 old person that you used to be can be put into a grave never to be raised again, and God can can create somebody entirely new. Uh, I went to school with, uh, uh, to college with a guy who's uh, older than I was, 20 or 25 years older than I was. His name was Robert Borelli. And I'll probably have Robert come speak here sometime and share with you his story. But Robert, that's not his real name. Robert Borelli worked for the mafia in New York City back in the day. And uh, ended up going to prison, in and out of prison a bunch, ended up being in prison for like 10 years, but got out by uh, sharing some secrets about the crime family that he worked for in New York City. Now, that's... He was a snitch, yes. <laughs> that is what happened. So he was put into witness protection. He was moved across the country. Everything that he used to be associated with, there was a total break from that. He was moved across the country, given a new home. He was given a new job. He was given a new identity. He got a new name. And his new name indicated that he was not going to be who he was. Now, that's the good news of what Jesus can do in our life, that because of Christ, we don't have to be who we were. Ephesians chapter 2 says, you were dead in trespass and sins, but God, I'm thankful for the but gods of the Bible, aren't you? 
He is the God of new beginnings. How can you completely trust him? Because he's the God of power. He's the God of promises. He's a God of new beginnings. Here's the, the uh, next thing, whatever. What, what, what are we on? Number four? There's seven. This is all under point one, okay? This is really just one big point. Big God. He's the God of nations. There's something new here. God has made promises to Abraham. He's reiterated those promises through these various chapters. But here we have a new little detail that you find for the very first time right here in chapter 17. You find it in verse uh, 5. God says, I will make you the father of many nations. Then verse 6, I will make you extremely fruitful and I will make nations come from you. Now, prior to this, in Genesis chapter 12, God promised Abraham that he would be a great nation. I will make you a great nation, right? The Jewish people are going to come from Abraham, but now he adds something new. God says, not only are you going to be a great nation, but actually nations will come from you. Now, that's true literally, and it's true because of what happened in Genesis chapter 16. Ishmael, uh, Abraham sleeps with Hagar. Hagar gives birth to Ishmael. Ishmael is going to father 12 princes who will become the Arab world. So every Arabic-speaking people group in the world today can trace their lineage back to Ishmael and ultimately back to, uh, back to Abraham. So literally, this is true. God is going to bring many nations, not just the nation of Israel, but many nations through Abraham. But I think this is also significant theologically because here, I think we have a little clue. This is an early promise that, uh, of Gentile inclusion in the people of God. The, the fact that God is going to be God, not just of a nation, but a God of the nations. And that you can know God even if you're not Jewish ethnically. And, and most of us in this room are probably not Jewish ethnically, which means this is really good news for you. It means no matter what your ethnic background, no matter what nation you're part of, you can be a child of Abraham. Uh, now, you say, well, pastor, uh, where are you getting that? Well, I'm actually getting it from the apostle Paul. Galatians chapter 3. Look at what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 through 29. For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ, and there is now no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And look at this. And if you belong to Christ, then you are what? Abraham's seed. That word seed, offspring, it's been used throughout the book of Genesis. Who is Abraham's seed? It's not just those who are ethnically Jewish. It's those who belong to Christ. And if you belong to Christ, you're Abraham's seed. Look at the next phrase. You are now an heir according to the promise. So think about what that means. It means even if you are not ethnically Jewish, if you belong to Christ, then in a sense, you are a child of Abraham and you are an inheritor of the promise. It means all the promises that God made to Abraham, which are fulfilled in Christ, now belong to you if you're in Christ. That's really good news. We get a taste of that right here in Genesis 17, where God says to Abram, there are going to be many nations that you give birth to. There are going to be people from, from African nations and European nations and Asian nations and South American nations. And there are going to be all kinds of people from the nations who are going to be part of Abraham's family because they belong to the son of Abraham, Jesus. Isn't that the picture we have in the book of Revelation, that around the throne room, there are going to be people from every people and nation and tribe and tongue? All of that was promised right here. God says, 
I'm the God of the nations. I'm going to bring nations through you. It's what he promised to do in Genesis 12, that he would bless the nations through Abraham. Not only is the God of nations, he's also the God of kings. What do we know about this big God? He's, he says, I'm going to bring nations through you. But look also in verse 6, kings will come from you. All right, this is another new feature in this promise to Abraham. This is the first time that God promises Abraham that he's going to bring kings through him. Now imagine this. Imagine being Abraham. You're 99 years old. God has made all these promises. He's promised you children. You still have no child. And now God is telling you, uh, yeah, not just nation, nations, and not just children, kings. Kings are going to come from you. Of course, we know that that happened literally. Later on, hundreds of years later, the Israelites are going to ask for a king. They've had judges, but then they're going to want a king. And so they're going to get kings. They're going to get Saul, and they're going to get David, and they're going to get Solomon, and so forth. All of these kings come from the line of Abraham. But do you know that this is the first time in your Bible, Genesis chapter 17, the first indication that there would be another son of Abraham who would be a king? You know, there's going to be a son of Abraham who's not just going to be a king. He's going to be the king of kings. You can read about him in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 16, which says that he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, king of kings and lord of lords. You can trace this all the way back to Genesis chapter 17. Jesus is that king. Jesus is going to be the king above all other kings. It is going to be the son of Abraham, Jesus Christ, who becomes the king we're promised that in Genesis chapter 17. Now imagine that if you're Abraham. You, you don't, you, here you are, Abraham. You have no idea how you're going to have even one son. And he has, especially has no idea that one of his sons will become not just a king, but the king of kings. All he has at this point is the promise of God. We have the privilege of seeing how that promise unfolds. We get to see from the other side how God brought to fulfillment the promise that he made to bring kings through Abraham. He is the God of kings, amen? He's also the God of generations. That's number six. He's the God of generations. Did you notice he says, I'm gonna confirm my covenant between you and your future offspring through their generations. And here's, in other words, here's what God is saying. God is saying to Abraham, Abraham, I'm not only gonna be your God, I'm gonna be the God of your children and their children after them and their children after them. Generation after generation after generation, I'm gonna be faithful. I'm gonna be a God who makes and keeps covenant with your great, 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 great grandkids. And generation after generation after generation, I'm gonna be the same God to your great grandkids that I was to you. Psalm 145 and verse four says, one generation will declare your works to the next. Jesus said in the Great Commission, Matthew 28 and verse 20, I am, I am with you always to the end of the age. That means that generation after generation after generation, God will be God. Generation after generation after generation, Jesus will be with us. Generation upon generation upon generation, God is going to be the same faithful big God that he was in Abraham's generation. I'm so thankful for that. I'm thankful for the faithful generations that have gone before. I'm thankful to look around this room and see people from many generations, and God has been faithful to you in your generation. Well, we have people in this room from age eight to age 80, and God has been faithful generation after generation. I'm thankful for my generation. I'm thankful for the generation that's coming up behind me, that's rising now and to watch their hunger for the Lord. If you come to the next service, you'll th see 300 young people right around this front, and they are 
hungry for the Lord. You know, you know that, that, that they stand here, this room stands here as a witness to Genesis 17 that God is who he says he is for us, that he is a God who is faithful generation after generation after generation. It means you don't need to be pessimistic when you turn the news on. It's not all bad. It may look bad if you just watch the news, but God is gonna be faithful to that generation after you and the generation after that. That's who he is. Who is this God? He is the God of power. He's the God of promises. He's the God of generations. He's the God of nations. He's the God of kings. He's also the God who is personal. He's a God who can be known and known personally. You would think that the God of the mountains, El Shaddai, God Almighty, right, transcendent above us, greater than us. You would think maybe that's a God who can't be touched, a God who can't be known. But did you notice the language here in these verses? God promises to Abraham, I will be your God. You see it in verse seven. I will be your God. Elohim, that's the word he uses of himself in verse seven. It's the same word used in Genesis one. The God who created heavens and earth is the God who can be your God. Verse eight, your future offspring, I will be their God. This is the personal possessive pronoun. Your God, their God. Who is this God that we worship? This is who God is, not some unknown, unknowable, un impersonal entity. Not just a God who's transcendent, far above us, but also a God who's imminent. He's near, he's, he's close by. He's a God who can be known and known personally. Psalm 23, one, the Lord is my shepherd. How about Psalm 63 and verse one, God, you are my God. What kind of God is he for us. He is the God who can be known personally, closer than your closest friend. If you want to trust God completely, you need to know who God is for you. Amen? All right, now that's point number one. We gotta move a little faster on point number two. If we wanna trust God completely, we need to know how God wants to work in us. God wants to work in your life. He wanted to work in Abraham's life. How does he wanna work in us? Well, we have a little instruction back up in verse one, uh, because here he's been saying to Abraham, this is who I am. This is who I am for you. This is what I'm going to do for you. But he also has something for Abraham to do. Look what he says, two commands in verse one, literally walk before me and be blameless. That's what he's calling Abraham to do. Walk before me <clears throat> and be blameless. Now those two commands go together and the first one precedes the second one. How do we become blameless? Well, we have to walk with God. If you want to be blameless, that means complete, without fault, without fault, if you want to be whole. The only way to be blameless is to walk before God. This is how Noah is described. You remember back in chapter 6 and verse 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries, and Noah what? walked with God. Sometimes in Genesis, it talks about walking with God. That entails that you're walking next to God, walking with God. The, 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 the imagery there is of relationship and intimacy, like you might walk in the neighborhood with your spouse side by side. That's one way of talking about a relationship with God. But here in Genesis 17, 1, God says something a little different. He says to Abraham, I want you to walk 
before me. I want you to walk in front of me, God says. Now, what does that mean? Well, this imagery is the image of a shepherd and a flock, which is imagery that Abraham would have been familiar with at this point. He's become a herdsman, right? So he's got flocks. And the way that you would lead or guide your flocks if you were a shepherd is that you would not walk in front of them and guide them that way because if you walk in front of sheep, sheep are not going to follow you because sheep is dumb. So they're going to wander off. What you do is a good shepherd, a skilled shepherd, will walk behind his flock to make sure that none are left behind, that they all make it to the destination. And a, a good shepherd will drive the flock from behind them. They will walk before the shepherd and a skilled shepherd will direct those sheep just using his voice. I wish my dogs would, would be directed that way. Just hear the command and, and do it. You've seen this if you've ever seen a cattle drive. You know that you don't leave, lead ca- cattle from the front. You drive them from behind. If you've ever seen a sheepdog do this, you, you'll see the same thing. They, they, they work the sheep from behind. That's the image that the Lord is using so that Abraham can get it. He's saying, I want you to be one of my flock. I want to be a shepherd to you. And I want, Abraham, I want you to so know me that you will recognize my voice, and when I call, you'll respond to it. That's what it means to walk before God. That's, what, that's how God wants to work in us. He wants us to know him so well that we can recognize the voice of our good shepherd and respond to it obediently so that God can guide and direct our path like a good shepherd does to a flock of sheep, right? That's what John 10, uh, how John 10 describes Jesus. He's the good shepherd and Jesus says, my sheep follow me because they know my voice. Do you know the voice of the shepherd? Has God worked in your life in such a way that you can recognize his voice and that you respond to the voice of your good shepherd when he directs your path. That's what he's saying he wants to do in Abraham's life. And up to this point, Abraham did not always listen to his, his voice. He was not always responsive to God's voice. He was not always seeking to be guided by the direction of God's voice. But God wanted to work in his life in such a way that his would be the only voice that would matter. Abraham Curavilla says about this passage that Abram was to be in his heart and soul, wholly oriented with the Lord and wholly committed to his way with no subsidiary loyalties adulterating his commitment. Whoa, that's a great line. No subsidiary loyalties adulterating his commitment. That's what it means to be a member of God's flock, listening to the voice of your shepherd, walking before God. If you go to Washington, D.C., you can go to the International Spy Museum, which is pretty cool. One of the most fascinating things you can learn about is the history of double agents in our country. A double agent is someone whose loyalties appear to be for one nation, but their true loyalties lie elsewhere. God is saying to Abraham, I want you to be loyal to me and to me alone. No subsidiary loyalties, no secondary loyalties, no no adulterating that commitment. I, I want you to belong to me and to belong to me completely. I want you to be a member of my flock and respond to my voice. Walk before me. Has God worked in your life in that way? That you could say, I know who my shepherd is. I recognize his voice and I respond to him when he calls. Now, That kind of belonging, God is going to give Abraham 
a physical reminder that he is to have that kind of commitment to the Lord. The physical reminder that he's going to give him begins in verse 9. It's circumcision. I know that that's what you were eager to hear about this morning, on a Sunday morning. <laughs> Let me just read the text, and then I'm going to make a couple comments about it. Look at verse 9. God also said to Abraham, as for you, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations are to keep my covenant. This is my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, which you are to keep. Every one of your males must be circumcised. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you. Throughout your generations, every male among you is to be circumcised at eight days old. Every male born in your household or purchased from any foreigner and not your offspring, whether born in your household or purchased, he must be circumcised. My covenant will be marked in your flesh as a permanent covenant. And if any male is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, a little wordplay here, that man will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. All right, so what is this whole thing of, of circumcision all about? Well, first of all, it was a reminder of God's promises. That's the first thing that circumcision did. Think about the nature of God's promise to Abraham. It's a promise for seed, offspring, children. So circumcision is a sign on the male reproductive organ that, that is a sign of seed that will come. So it's a reminder of the promise. But secondly, circumcision was a reflection of belonging. It was a physical marker. It was something that literally, physically would mark Abraham and his family and his entire household as being set apart for God or being cut off for God, if you will. The image, that's the imagery, right, of being cut off, of being set apart. And there's, there's a sense in which if you don't belong to God, you're cut off from God. That's verse 14. You can be cut off from God, but you could also be cut off for God. And the whole idea with Abraham is that circumcision was a marker that his life was set apart for God, that he was literally marked off for God. It was a way of marking someone, even on their body. Think about with cattle, you, you brand a cow. It's a physical marker of belonging. That's what circumcision was. And there would be other ways to mark the Jewish people as belonging to God, the way they would wear their beards, the, the, the clothing that they would wear, the way that they would prepare their food, the way they would eat their food, the way they would organize their week. All of those things were outward signs of an inward commitment, was outward markers of belonging to God. And that's what God is saying to Abraham. He's saying, I want you to be my sheep and I'm gonna mark you as belonging to me. I'm gonna give you this physical marker, this outward sign of this inward commitment that you belong to me. So that everyone who ever uh, could even look at Abraham or a member of his family would know that's somebody who belongs to God. That's someone who is marked off as belonging to the Lord. I wonder if we live our life in such a way that if people watched us for a week, they could tell that we belong to the Lord. If they followed us around and saw the way we, we lived at, at work or at school or in our home or in our private life, if they followed us around for a week, could they tell that we belong to God, that everything about our life, not only our, our heart and our soul, but even our bodies, that, that our whole life is marked off as belonging to God? That's how he wanted to work in the life of Abraham so that this former pagan idol worshiper from Ur could be physically marked off as belonging to God and everyone who looked at him would know to whom he belonged. That's how God wants to work in us. If you're gonna trust God completely, you need to know who God is for you. You need to know how God wants to work in you. But finally, you need to... No, if you're going to trust God completely, 
what God can do with you. What God can do with you. I want to just read uh, the next section. It's a long stretch of text. But I want, to, I want to show you what begins to happen because beginning in verse 15, God is going to include Sarah in the promises. And we're going to see how Abraham and Sarah are going to respond to him. So I want to read the whole section and then just come back and make a couple of comments and then we'll be finished today. Look at chapter 17, verse 15. God said to Abraham, as for your wife, Sarai, do not call her Sarai, for Sarah will be her name, and I will bless her, and I, indeed I will give you a son by her, and I will bless her, and she will produce nations, and kings of peoples will come from her. Now let's just stop right there. Notice the language is uh, reiterating to Sarah now. It's including Sarah in what he had promised to Abraham. He blesses Abraham, he blesses Sarah. He promises Abraham to have descendants, he promises Sarah to have descendants. He promises that nations and kings will come from Abraham. He says nations and kings are gonna come from Sarah. He gives Abraham a new name. He gives Sarah a new name. The whole point of this verse is to say, Sarah is included in the promise. And that's important because Abraham wasn't sure up to this point. God made promise for him, a promise for him to have descendants. Back in chapter 15, he's childless. So he thinks, well, maybe it's Eleazar, my servant. I'll adopt my servant. Maybe that's the descendant, that's the heir. God says, no, it's going to come from your body. So Abraham will says, well, <clears throat> but my wife's old. It's obviously, it might, might come from my body. It's not going to come from her body. Maybe it'll come from Hagar's body. So chapter 16, he sleeps with Hagar. It's from Abraham's body and Hagar's body. But now God is clarifying because Abraham is a dumb sheep. You can write that in your margin, dumb sheep. He doesn't get it. So God has to get real clear. Anybody ever have to get real clear with your kids? This is what I mean. That's what God is, God is getting down in Abraham's face, getting real clear. It's not just going to be from your body, Abraham. It's going to be from Sarah's body as well. Sarah is going to be the one through whom this promised child will come. How does Abraham respond? He falls face down and laughs. I would too, probably. Why? Because his wife is 90. He's 99. It's impossible. So he laughs and says to himself, can a child be born to a 100-year-old man? Can Sarah, a 90-year-old woman, give birth? So Abraham said to God, this is funny, if only Ishmael were acceptable to you. Here is Abraham offering a rational alternative which we're very good at doing with God. Like, okay, here, that sounds real big, God. Here's something that can actually be achievable. How about Ishmael? We already got him. Be real careful about offering your reasonable solutions to God, right? Because he's El Shaddai, God Almighty. Make sure you don't shrink God down to you size. God wants to be God-sized in your life. This is Abraham trying to shrink God down to Abraham's size. How about Ishmael? But God said, verse 19, no, your wife, Sarah. You see God just getting right down in his face, getting real clear. Sarah will bear you a son, and you will name him Isaac. And I'll confirm my covenant with him as a permanent covenant for his future offspring. And then in verses 20 through 22, he says, look, and I'm not going to forget about Ishmael either. I hear you about Ishmael. I'm going to bless him as well. But, but, but it's going to be Isaac who's going to be that child of promise. Now look down in verse 23. So Abraham took his son Ishmael, those born in his household, or purchased every male among the members of Abraham's household, and he circumcised them on that very day 
just as God said. Notice that. That very day, Abraham does it, just as God said. He says the same thing two verses later in verse 26. On that very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. Okay, now drop down to chapter 18. I'm going to summarize verses for time, verses 1 through 8. Verses 1 through 8, God is going to come to Abraham in a theophany. I told you last, a couple weeks ago, a theophany is a visible manifestation of God who is invisible. Okay? So three visitors are going to come to Abraham. He's going to host them and prepare a meal for them. But this is actually God. He's visibly manifesting himself via these three strange visitors. Verse 9 of chapter 18. They asked Abraham, where is your wife Sarah? There in the tent, he answered. And the Lord said, I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time, and your wife Sarah will have a son. Okay, once again, God making it real clear, it's going to be Sarah. Now, Sarah was eavesdropping. That's what it says in Hebrew. She was listening at the entrance of the tent behind him. She's on the other, you remember when we had hard phone lines, you could pull up the other line and listen in? That's Sarah right here. And now here's the funny, the author's just making it expressly clear for us as well. Abraham and Sarah were old. Did you miss that? And getting on in years. You know what that means? They were old. And Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. You know what that means? She's old. So she laughed to herself. After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, are you getting the picture? Will I have delight? But the Lord asked Abraham, why did Sarah laugh saying, can I really have a baby when I'm old? Now here's the key verse. Is anything impossible for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will come back to you, and in about a year, she will have a son. And Sarah denied it. I did not laugh, she said, because she was afraid. But he replied, oh, yes, you did. (laughs) All right, what's going on here? Well, this records Abraham and Sarah's responses. And their responses are very similar, but they're different in one way. Both of their responses, they, they respond with laughter disbelief. Why? Because they old. (laughs) This is an impossible thing. You laugh at impossible things. God is saying, okay, you're 99. A year from now, you'll be 100. And you'll be playing with a child at home. And he says, ha! And that's exactly what Sarah does as well. She laughs. So they both laugh. And they both ask God questions about this whole thing. How, how's this supposed to happen? We're old. But there's one difference between the way they respond. Abraham laughs and then questions, but then obeys. And that's really clear at the end of chapter 17. You see it in a couple of ways. First of all, he's, fall, he's, saying, he's laughing from the, the posture of being on his face. Twice in chapter 17, verse uh, Oh, let's see, verse 19. Nope, sorry, I'm looking at the wrong chapter. Verse 3 and verse 17, it says Abram's on his face. He falls face down. So there's a picture there of Abram's submission and humility and worship. But then as soon as he laughs and questions God, and God says, no, it's going to be Sarah. 
It says in verses 23 through 27 that Abraham gets up and he circumcises everybody in his house. And it says on that very day, he says it twice, verse 23 and verse 26, on that very day, on that very day, just as God had commanded. So the picture you have of Abraham is somebody who's questioning God, skeptical a little bit, but still obedient. Sarah, on the other hand, is pictured a little differently. She laughs. We can't give her a hard time for that, right? Because we would probably do that too. But then she, instead of laughing and obeying, she laughs and lies. And there's no image here of her being submissive or obedient. It's just laughter and then deceit. Why is this in here? Well, I think that God is contrasting for us two, two kinds of laughter, two kinds of questions, two ways of relating to him. What faith looks like or doesn't look like. One, one person doubts, but then does what God says. The other is just pictured here as skeptical, maybe even cynical, and it ends with deceit. There's a kind of laughing in our life that says, hey, God, how is this going to work? There's another kind of laughing and questioning that says, hey, God, this is not going to work. One questions but then obeys in faith. The other questions without faith. Listen, God isn't afraid of our doubts. Doubt is normal. But skepticism is something different. Skepticism is doubt with teeth. Abraham and Sarah stand here as two ways of responding to God. You you can scoff at the promises of God like Sarah. Or maybe you can struggle with the promises of God like Abraham, but step out in faith anyway. Abraham for once in these chapters, is a model for us of what it looks like to have a hard time trusting God, a hard time believing he'll do what he says, but acting in faith that he'll do it. And how does God respond to this? It's the key phrase in the whole thing. Verse 14, is anything impossible for me? You may have a hard time believing that God can do something in your life. Like Abraham and Sarah, you may have a hard time believing that God can do something with you. I mean, Abraham and Sarah, like, God can't use us for this. We're too old. Maybe you've said that before. I'm too old, or I'm too young, or I'm too messed up. God can't do this with me. Is anything impossible for the Lord? You remember back to chapter 17, verse 1? He's God Almighty. If 17 and verse 1 is true, then 18 and 14 can be true as well. If God is God Almighty, then nothing is impossible for him. If God is all-powerful, then nothing is impossible. You know, you have this phrase repeated in your New Testament, another unlikely birth, this one with Mary. Angel comes to Mary, you're going to have a son. She says, how can this be? And Luke 137, the angel says, nothing will be impossible with God. Can a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman have a child? Yes. Can a man be crucified and buried for three days and come back to life? Yes. Can God use someone like you? Yes. Why? Because nothing is impossible with God, which means you can completely trust him. Amen? You can trust him. 
completely because he's the God of the impossible. Let's bow together. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word, how it instructs us, how it feeds and nourishes us. Lord, help us to be like Bruce McCandless and just step out untethered to anything else that might give us security, trusting you completely. Help us to do this in the power of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.